Please take out your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 17. That'll be our text this morning. Have you ever been reading in your Bibles and come across a text like John 7 or Romans 4, Galatians 2 or Acts 15, and you come across something like this? Let me read a couple of verses to you from Romans chapter 2. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who merely won outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Have you ever read that and thought, what's the deal with circumcision? You can raise your hand. I did. For a long, long, long time. And so we got to kind of get our mind around why does the Bible and even the New Testament talk about it so often? Because if you lean into your New Testament, you'll find there are over 50 different references to circumcision and over 40 different passages, and most of them are clarifying the gospel. They're trying to bring light to the fact of what the fullness of what Christ accomplished for us at the cross. So to understand that, we have to have a concept of circumcision. So friends, this is the perfect example of why knowing and understanding the Old Testament will illuminate and brighten our understanding of the New Testament. Because if we don't understand circumcision from an Old Testament perspective, then not only are you missing something, you're just left a little grossed out. Am I right? We just try to comprehend stuff like this, and you've got to see it from the Old Testament. Therefore, as we continue to look at the life of Abram within the context of our series in the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis 17, and Genesis 17 is an extraordinarily important chapter. Because this is where the content and the context of the covenant of circumcision is found. It's where it comes into the Bible. And therefore, to understand this chapter is to give understanding to the rest of your Bible in a lot of ways. So this morning, as we head that direction, we need to keep the life of Abram in context. We see in Genesis 12, a shift in the text, God begins to build a people for himself. We start to see God having a a personal relationship with people, and he starts meeting with them, not unlike his interactions with Adam and Noah, but yet somehow this is different. There's more here. It's something deeper. Because what we find in the text in Genesis 12 is that the Lord God calls Abram, who's a worshiper of false gods, to follow him. God initiates and calls him and says, I want you to come with me. I want you to leave behind your family, your clan, your country, because I have something better for you. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. I'm going to give you a great name, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And as we lean into the text in Genesis, and we start watching what happens, you start to see Abram being a man just like us. He falls immediately into sin. And what we see in the life of Abraham is when God starts to tell us, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're supposed to cue in on that. God's not identifying with these perfect people. He's not saying be a perfect religious guy like Abraham. He's actually saying Abraham was a fallen man. Abraham had nothing going for him except that he believed in me. 
Abraham stuck to me, cling to me, even when he fell on his face. So when God identifies himself that way in the Old Testament, be, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're to look at those stories and see God's covenantal faithfulness in light of their unfaithfulness. We're supposed to see grace. And so when we come into Genesis 12 and we see the grace as God initiates a relationship with him and wants to make him into a blessing, then in Genesis 15, we see the Lord God renewing this promise, clarifying it and expanding it, this time making it even more plain. I will make your family more than the stars in the sky, and I'll also give you the land that I've promised you, even spelling out the borders. And though God has made Abram and Sarah promise, what we find in Genesis 16 is they attempt to take things into their own hands. They try to take control rather than trusting God. And Abram has a son through Hagar, Sarah's maidservants, and yet again, despite their lack of trust, God remains faithful, and we'll see his faithfulness as we step into this text, Genesis 17, this morning. Let's start there. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, the first thing we've got to acknowledge is Abram's age. The text tells us that he's 99. That makes him old. And... If you're following along the text, if you go one verse before that, we should recognize that the text acknowledges that he's 86. And so what you should start to see is that not only have 13 years passed, but it communicates something to us about God's nature and his promises. Because in the time between God showing up to Abram some 25 years ago, God reissuing a promise to him, and then waiting 13 more years for its fulfillment, we're supposed to cue into this idea that God is faithful and that he doesn't have the same timeline we do. Rather, he calls us to, into faith. He calls us to trust in him, to believe in him, and he doesn't bail us out on that. See, when we read a promise from God, we want it now, right? I want the peace of God now. I want healing now. I want understanding now. I want strength now. We want instant and we want quick. And one of the things that the Old Testament narrative helps us to gain a perspective on is that's not the nature of God. He doesn't bail us out on trusting him. In fact, he's more than willing to leave us in an uncomfortable place, clinging to the very nature of the promise he's given us. I will hold you. I will keep you. His ways are not our ways. We're called to trust him because he is God. And when we often expect immediate, it's because we want to play the role that I'm God. I want to dictate to you how this interaction is going to work. I want peace, and if you're fair, you give it to me now. I want healing, and if you're fair at all, give it to me now, and yet he's God. And so if we lean into the text, we lean for understanding, we might see that he might well call us to wait 13 years or more. Because in, it is about his time 
and not Abram's time. It's his time. And it's in his time that God appears to Abram. Because, friends, we always have to recognize he shows up in the right moment. So this time the Lord God says, I am God Almighty. And he refers to himself as El Shaddai. Now we've got to pause for just a second to recognize a couple of things. One, this is the first time that God identifies himself in this way. It's the first time we see it in the scriptures. And when God shows up and declares something about himself, I am El Shaddai, it communicates something. He's communicating something to Abram. So what does it mean? Well, to be fair, most people don't know. Just call it what it is. You want to take a traditional approach to it where you take apart the Hebrew words. The closest we can get is the idea that God, El, is sufficient. The God is enough. That's why most translations point to the God Almighty. God often uses the name for himself or the name that's given him in the text is given to highlight the characteristic that we need from God. Which is to say this, that if you're going through a hard time, if you're doubting, if you're waiting on God, and all of those things could be said of Abram, then the God who is sufficient, the great almighty God would be of great comfort. For the almighty God, which is again how it gets translated even in the ESV, is trustworthy. And he's more than capable of fulfilling his promises, even when they seem unlikely, even when they seem impossible, even when they are beyond our doubts. And then the Lord God, the God Almighty, initially calls two things out to Abram. He says, walk before me. Could be better translated, walk in my presence and be blameless. God again initiates this relationship with him. I want to have a covenant with you. I want to multiply you greatly. What it starts to do is it's forecasting that God is again going to expand his promise. Listen to verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. He's expanding the promise. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And if you're paying attention, the Lord God, your God Almighty, is now changing his name from Abram, which means the exalted father, to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. And we should pick up on that. Because in essence, what God is saying to Abram is, who has made a promise to Abraham, I want you to always be reminded of my promise. I want you always to be reminded of my faithfulness. Every time you hear your name spoken, you are to be reminded that your identity is who I've declared you to be. And isn't that incredible? That your identity is who I've declared you to be. That I've called you to be the father of a multitude of nations. For who he's declared us to be is far truer than anything else. It's worth more than anything else because he is faithful and he's declaring his faithfulness in Abram, even in changing his name to Abraham. I am going to carry out my promises. 
verse 6. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So you follow this, right? We start believing that, okay, this is God's promise to Abram. And he, he, they already have Ishmael. So he's got to be talking about Ishmael. He's got this boy. He's, he's poured into this boy. We don't even know what his relationship with Ishmael's look like. He's probably even told Ishmael, like, hey, you're my boy. God's made his promises. They're going to come. And he continues to expand the promise. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Do you see the extent to which God keeps his promise? For God's not only said, I'm going to make your offspring huge, he's actually declaring it's an everlasting covenant. So this isn't just about you and your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids or your great-great-great-grandkids. We can get an infinitudinous amount of greats in there, and God's saying, I'm still going to be faithful because it's about my faithfulness. God's reestablishing his promise And he's trying to show Abram the fullness of it. And then he calls Abram to participate in it. Listen to this carefully. Verse 9. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he explains it further, verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be with your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And thus, the covenant sign of circumcision is given. And let's be honest, it's not a comfortable sign. In fact, you should recall that Noah was given the rainbow as a sign that God would keep his promises. Worked out pretty good for Noah. Here it's different, right? Abraham is given the covenantal sign of circumcision. That is, and here's the technical part, that the foreskin of the male's penis would be removed, that it would be cut off. That's this moment we got to recognize that there aren't probably any Jewish people in this family from Jewish descendancies. Which is to say, if you're here and you've been circumcised, it's not a covenantal circumcision. Longer conversation for a different day. But what we find here is God calling circumcision, the idea that it would be cut off, and that's an intentional term, from adults and from babies, from family members and from servants. For what we find is God is intentionally making a people for himself 
a people who will be distinct. The text tells us this is an everlasting covenant, and if you don't participate, you'll be cut off. Play on words. So we're going to get to what that means and why that's significant. I need you to hang out with me for a minute on this because the conversation isn't over. And I think if it's over, we miss it. So let's listen to this next part because I think it's vital to understanding the covenant. Listen carefully. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And we have to lean in on this because this is part of the covenantal sign. God changes Sarai's name from Sarai, meaning princess, to Sarah, meaning royal princess. He's changing her identity too. Which is to say, much like Abraham, he's now trying to connect her identity to his covenantal promises, to his faithfulness. He's communicating to her what I've said about you, what I've declared about you is the most true thing about you. So why we need to see this is to see that Abraham and Sarah are both part of this covenant. And we need to see that because we need to understand that this isn't an only male covenant. It looks that way on paper. I think it gets talked about that way a lot. But as you play this thing out, it's not a male-only covenant. Watch this in verse 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, didn't you already answer the promise? God says, No. I've made a promise to Abraham and to Sarah. And I'm going to fulfill my promise. Even when you took it into your own hands, even when you tried to make my plan your plan, I'm going to fulfill my promise because I'm faithful. And his faithful promise always included Sarah. So you get verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, the 90-year-old, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and I'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princesses and I will make him into a great nation. What we have to see is that Isaac is a part of that covenant of circumcision, the promise of him. And when we start to see that, when we see the context of Genesis 17, it starts to give us some understanding. And this is what I'm wanting you to see. That the Lord God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a multitude of offspring. He called them to trust him. And then they waited 25 years. And yet God was faithful. And so he changes both of their names that they'd be forever reminded of his covenantal faithfulness. That even when they doubted, even when they disbelieved, even when they thought it was all impossible, 
they would be reminded that nothing is impossible with God. And so God gives them the sign of the covenant of circumcision within the context of revealing the fulfillment of that promise. That all of the offspring, all of the nations, all of the kings that are promised would not come from their provisions, from their planning, but through his faithfulness to a 90-year-old woman. They would come through Sarah as he promised. And so what we see quite plainly when we see the covenant of circumcision given in the midst of the foretelling of Isaac, and we see Abraham's obedience to this before the end of the chapter, is it shows us something unique about this sign of circumcision. So let's talk about that for just a second. Because first we need to recognize that circumcision wasn't unique to Abraham's family. This is not where it started. He didn't invent it. This isn't the first time we see it in culture. In fact, it was a common practice among many pagan groups to initiate boys into manhood. But what God is doing here is he's creating a, a, a sign, a covenantal sign that's unique. And second, and perhaps quite obviously, we need to recognize that the sign of circumcision was not a public sign. Which is to say it wasn't outwardly obvious. Which is to say that when God calls and makes himself a distinct people, it's not like he said, all of my people shall wear yellow polo shirts and khakis. In such a way that the world can all look and go, that's who they are. What God actually does is he creates a very private sign that wouldn't be obvious except for between two people right? Two people would know. To two people, it would be a very obvious sign. And so that's when you see the sign of the covenant in the context of the foretelling of Isaac to be important. It's to remind Abraham and Sarah that every single time they come together, and you know what that means, that they would be reminded that he was faithful and that his faithfulness would go beyond their generation to the generations. That generationally, after generation after generation, God would multiply them. The covenant sign was not a sign for men, as many have suggested. It was a sign for husbands and wives to be reminded that when they come to procreate, it was a sign to Abraham and to Sarah that when they come together, they would know and they would understand that God is good, right, and trustworthy. And they'd be reminded every time. Now that seems strange to us in part, right? But that's where we got to keep in mind that God is making a promise to two older people about their generations about their kids it's a sign that laid into what god had promised for them god's making himself clear he's giving a sign that he's going to be faithful in this way they were to be reminded that god was a promise keeper that he was faithful and that he would always be faithful and then the last seven verses we see abraham's obedience so what does this communicate to us why do we need this? Well, the first answer is that I think we need to be aware when we come to the New Testament 
When we start reading into the New Testament, the, the sign that was given to remind Israel that God would be faithful, that he'd carry out his promises, rather than being a sign of God's faithfulness, had become an issue of trite obedience. They just go through the motions. And I think we need to lean into that to recognize that if the sign of God's covenant of faithfulness had become a sign of pride, a sign of exclusion, a sign of a tradition without meaning, that we need to heed a warning in that. That somewhere in the midst of this, we could start believing that rote, trite obedience is enough, right? We could believe things like, if I go to church, then that testifies that I believe that I'm saved. Does it? No. We could choose to believe that if I've been baptized, if I walk the aisle, if I've checked the box, there's trite levels of obedience we could think are significant, that they're enough. We could start to trust in the externals and not believe. That was the problem with Israel as you get to the New Testament. They trusted in the externals rather than believing. That's why you start to see words like circumcision of the heart showing up even in the minor prophets. Because all that shows us is absolutely hollow faith, which in fact is no faith at all. And finally, we need to be reminded that in the New Testament, we are not promised kids. We are not promised grandkids, and we're not promised great-grandkids. And more than that, and possibly just as painfully, we're not promised that our kids, grandkids, or great-grandkids will be children of the promise. Now, if you lean into Abraham's story, Romans 9 would lean into that for us and tell us that not all that was Abraham's, not all that was Israel was Israel. And we want to believe wholeheartedly that we'll have kids and great-grandkids and great-great-great-grandkids and they'll all love Jesus, but that's not a promise that's given to us. Because what we find in the New Testament is that we don't have a physical family, but a spiritual family. This is why in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, he must be born again. It's that same imagery of procreation. You must become new. You must be born again to have eternal life. That's why in Matthew 28, we're commissioned to share the message. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Why? Because God does tell you, you may not have physical kids and physical grandkids and physical great-grandkids, but listen to me. You can have spiritual kids and spiritual grandkids and spiritual great-grandkids. And man, my great hope is that those are the same, right? That all of my kids know and love and trust in Jesus, but that's not a promise to me. But I'm still supposed to pour into my family. I'm still, still supposed to love them, pursue them, and share Christ with them so that they can be a part of my spiritual family. So when you lean into the New Testament, you find there are two signs that are given to us. We don't get circumcision. We get baptism and we get communion. We get baptism, which is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a testimony that what I'm proclaiming outwardly is true inwardly, that I'm declaring Jesus Christ is my Savior. 
And we miss the fact that that's not merely an individual sign. It's a public sign. That as you make that profession, everyone else here is professing with you your baptism. That much like circumcision, we're to be reminded of our baptism. We're to look back on the fact that God has cleansed us. That he's made us new. And if you think about those kinds of imageries, you could be reminded every time you get in the shower or every time you go swimming or every time you get in water to be reminded of that same reality. God is faithful and that he'll keep his promises. Because as you work through this book of Genesis, that's what keeps sidetracking these guys. That's what, that's what runs them off course. When we start to believe that it's on us, that it's about us, that it's about us accomplishing these things, us doing these things, when we start believing that we need to do it rather than trusting God, rather than leaning into his promises and his faithfulness. Friends, this covenantal sign, awkward as it is, was given so that they would always, always, always understand in the midst of hardness, pain, that God would be faithful. And so we're to be reminded wherever we fall in life this morning that God will be faithful to his promises, even in our areas of pain. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. That in it we find truth and in it we find hope. And in it, we find an affirmation that you're the only entity in the universe to which I could find my security. Thank you, Father, that in this text, you changed the names of Abram and Sarah. Father, you changed their identity so that they would know and understand that who they are is who you declared them to be. And that de their identity declared by you is the most important thing about them. And Father, I pray that we, sitting here in 2019, would understand that same reality. That who we are, the most fundamental thing about us is who you've declared us to be. It's the truest thing about us. So Jesus, I pray that you'd be at work in us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen.